it's been a it's been a tough week in America. We think about uh, all of the things that have transpired in in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, the fear that uh, a lot of people experienced up in the Northeast with uh, the things that transpired during the Boston Marathon, and then even in our own state, just right down the uh, the highway to our to our east and north of us. Uh, you know, great, uh, a great tragedy in the city of West. And we have come together to worship God this morning and to remind each other that God is in control and that God is not the problem, but God is the answer. Let's pray. Father, we are, are thankful for everything that we've experienced this morning already in your presence together as your children. But we, we seek to, to have a, an even more a, a, a abiding experience during this worship assembly, Father, where we have all gathered together as your children in your presence as we, we our minds, our lives, our experiences, uh, everything that is a part of us as human beings, Father, intersects Your Word. And we pray that You will give us, especially this morning, Father, eyes that see it and ears that hear it. And for it to, to not just lay upon our mind, but to sink down and go all the way down into our heart and transform us in such a way that we leave this place, Father, encouraged and more faithful and a, and a, a greater clarity and brightness of vision in our eyes as we go forward this next week and, and face everything that lies before us, knowing that You are there with us and that every promise that we have in Christ is good. Father, bless us in this time and in all of the ways that we can lift up the people of Massachusetts and the people of Central Texas in prayer and in the name and authority of Your Son, Jesus, we do lift them up to You and ask for... for all of your blessings to fall upon them and for you, Father, to be made known and to be known in glorious ways in their midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, uh, there's kind of a, lot, a list that I've put together. It's a, a sort of a, a weird list. It's all of the things that the Bible gets credit for saying that the Bible has never said. Uh, I'll give you an example. In, in the 1980s, Mike Ditka was a coach of the, the, uh, the Chicago Bears, won a Super Bowl in 1985 against the Patriots. It was a great defense, probably the best defense I remember seeing in my lifetime. And some years after that victory, Coach Ditka was fired. He was released by the, uh, by the Bears. And there was a press conference, and the journalist asked him, how do you feel about this firing? And Ditka, and you know Coach Ditka, the, the coach and the Bears, he, he's, he stands up and he says, well, as the good book says, this too shall pass. I mean, it sounds biblical, right? It's not in there. Doesn't say it anywhere. Doesn't say it anywhere. Uh, another one, I, uh, some years ago when my Aunt Mary was still alive, we were having a discussion uh, uh, about church, and she said, well, you know what the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. And I said, Aunt Mary, where does it say that? She says, I don't know, it's in there someplace. I said, you know what, Benjamin said it. She goes, the tribe? And I said, no, Franklin, Benjamin Franklin is the one that said that. And we have a whole list of these, right? Finish this statement. 
Cleanliness is next to? Not in the Bible. Now, I didn't say that to all the little kindergartners. <laughs> Here's another one. Do all you can and God will do the rest. Not in there. Here's another one. God will never give you more than you can handle. Now, I have a bone to pick. I think I'll pick it now. That is an absolute lie and non-biblical. Now, the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but the Bible is full of places and stories and verses to remind us that God is always there because we are always facing more than we can handle, right? That's what the story in Joshua 6 is all about this morning. And the reason for that is the reason that God gives you more than you can handle is because, quite frankly, God is more, uh, more uh, concerned. He is, he is more interested in your character of faith than He is about your comfort. Now, here's the storyline in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua, at the end of Joshua chapter 5, those last couple of verses that we looked at last Sunday night, Joshua is thinking about Jericho. He's there again for the first time in about four decades. And he's thinking about Jericho, and he looks up, and all of a sudden there is a man with a drawn sword. It turns out to be the, Lord of the, the commander of the Lord's army. And they have this, this conversation, and in this conversation, the beginning of chapter 6, the Lord of, says to Joshua, Look, see, I have, given, I have delivered, I am giving Jericho, its king, and its soldiers into your hands. Do you see it? And then he gives instructions on the conquering of Jericho. There's a, be a, there's a front guard, and then there are seven priests that have trumpets, and then there are more priests that are carrying the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and then there's this rear guard. And they are to burn everything in this city except for the devoted things. In Hebrew, the cherem, which is the, are the things that are devoted to God. And that turns out to be all of the gold, all of the silver, all of the brass, and all of the articles or materials of iron. They are devoted to the Lord, and they go into the Lord's treasury. And what they are supposed to do is for six days, this vanguard and then the Ark of the Covenant and the trumpets and the, and the priests and this rear guard, they are to march around the city of Jericho one time and they are in silence except for the trumpets. But then on the seventh day, they are to march around the city seven times and then there's this long blast. Joshua is to give a signal and the people are to give a shout. And the walls around Jericho collapse. They tumble to the ground. And all of the fighting men go, as you read, everyone goes straight up and into the city. And those two spies that had been there a couple of chapters earlier had been spying out Jericho. They go and they find Rabbi and they bring her. <laughs> Did I say Rabbi? I meant Ray Hab. There you go. Just seeing if you're awake. Yeah, I know it's early. It's been a tough week. Two spies that had made the, the covenant with Rahab, they go in, they get her and her family to bring her out to safety, and the city of Jericho is taken and is completely burned to the ground. And the devoted things are taken to the treasury, except as we'll look at next week at the Battle of Ai, not all of it was taken to the treasury. And Joshua pronounces a curse on the firstborn and the lastborn of anyone that tries to set the gate and the foundation of Jericho ever again. And if you go to First, uh, first Kings chapter 16, I think about verse 34 or so, you find that that really did happen later on in history. And then the end of chapter 6 says that God was with Joshua and that the fame of Joshua spread throughout the land. 
Now, I, you know, I'll, I'll trust all of our Bible school teachers to go over all of the, the curious details of this story and talk about the dimensions of Jericho and those sorts of things. But on the face of it, it's just an ex- extremely, incredibly astonishing story. I mean, you have Joshua who's never gone to battle against any kind of a walled city ever in his history, in his experience, has he ever done that. And then on top of that, an inexperienced general, you have an army that is marching around a city that doesn't have any of the the weapons of modern warfare such as they were back in the time of Joshua. They don't have battering rams, they don't have catapults, they don't have siege towers, they, they have none of that. And then on top of those two facts, you have this one. The city is brimming with with supplies. Water, food. Remember when the people crossed the Jordan, the Jordan was flooded, and at flood stage happens at what season of the year? Harvest. They're in the middle of the harvest. The city is just brimming with food and with supplies. They are ready for a long, long siege. In fact, in some ways, they're probably better prepared, at least in their own minds, for a siege than the people of Israel. So right here we stop at the end of the storyline, at the end of chapter 6, and we say here is the principle that we need to go into this text with, and it's this. We must see the battles with the eyes of faith, the battles of life, the battles for our faith and with our faith and in our faith. We have to see them, all of these battles with the eyes of faith. In other words, this is what we see. Big God, little world. Big God, little world. Your life with God, your life without God. Your life, your battles with God, your battles without God. Now, all of us face Jordan River kind of issues and Jericho walled city kinds of problems, do we not? And the question, when we face all of these things that look insurmountable to us, they're walls, they're gigantic walls. It's a river that's a mile wide and we're going to get a million plus people across it. How are we going to do that? When we see these, these kinds of problems, the question is, do we see God delivering a walled city into our hands? Do we see God delivering the walled city into our hands? Those walls that look in, insurmountable to us, those obstacles that look like there is no way we're ever going to be able to get over that or through that or around that, Those kinds of insurmountable walls in the eyes of God are the kinds of walls that tumble to the ground and they collapse. They are the walls that fall. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30, the writer says, writing about this very story, he says, remember this, by faith the walls of Jericho did what? They fell. By faith the walls of Jericho what, church? They fell. By faith they fell. After the army had marched around them for seven days. Now, what is this strategy? How do we form this faith that causes the walls to tumble? Well, the first thing we need is a perspective. And the reason we need a perspective is it's not just what we think. You'll notice as you read this narrative, it's about seeing. Do you see this? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? One of the perspectives that we need to see in our faith as it develops and becomes robust and strong and dynamic is that our triumph has already been accomplished. Do you see that? Do you see that as, as you approach a relationship that is really messed up? That what looks like a relationship that can't be reconciled, a relationship that can never be healthy again, that is not an insurmountable wall to God with the people of faith. 
Or you think about a financial situation, you think, how in the world am I ever going to be able to, to dig myself out of this? Or how am I ever going to be able to forgive myself? Or how am I ever going to be able to face this or to face that in life? Is the perspective of our faith that we, we see the triumph already being accomplished? The point is, friends, that we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. And that is huge. That makes a huge difference in the way that you approach any struggle in life. Many of you know everything there is to know about the Battle of the Bulge. It's been on television. Lots of books have been written about it. It's a very interesting part of World War II. It happened in December of 44, uh, excuse me, of, yeah, of December of 43 and January of 44. And you'll remember that the 101st Airborne is trapped and surrounded in Bastogne by the German army. And by December 25th on Christmas Day, they had already defeated two panzer divisions that had been thrown at them. They, were, they had very few supplies. They, were, they didn't even have boots out there for many of the soldiers. They had lost them in the fighting. They didn't have replacement boots for these guys that were out there in frost and in ice and sub-zero weather. And they fought everything that the Germans were able to throw against them. And then on December 26, Patton's 3rd Army and the 4th Armored Division, they break through those German lines. And Patton is, you know, uh, Patton is able to, to end that siege by breaking those lines and supplies being able to go in. Now, it's been read, or it's been, I, I've read, it's been said that despite the desperate situation that the 101st Airborne was in, in Bastogne for those two months that they were fighting against the Nazis before Patton arrived, no member of the 101st Airborne has ever agreed that the division needed to be rescued. Although they were surrounded and starving and fighting frostbite and freezing temperatures. And on top of that, the shells were coming in and hitting the fort and those pines were exploding like bombs above them. They never committed to ever, ever needing Patton's help. Now, once again, Israel finds themselves between an enemy and a large body of water. This time it's Jericho in front of them. It's the, 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 the flood stage, mile-wide Jordan River behind them. And, you know, what are their thoughts? Are they thinking about victory? Are they thinking about, about a, a, a possibility of defeat as they face this thing that God has called them to do and to be? And this is where God delivers to them what is known in, in uh, scholarly circles, the prophetic future. It is God telling them that the victory is decided before the battle has even started. And so in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 2, he says again, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and all of its fighting men. And you know, because he says that, you know, if we, if we, didn't, if we didn't read verse 2 of chapter 6 and we, and we see, you know, them marching around the city, you know, we're thinking, what a crazy strategy. But because we do know what verse 2 is, all of a sudden we have a completely different perspective on that marching around the city like that. You know what that is? It's called a victory parade. It's called a victory parade that's happening before the battle even begins. And on top of that, it was a parade that the generation before them, the preceding generation, could have participated in. But didn't. And that writer in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 says, we see that they were not able to enter because of their what? They couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. 
And then chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them. What? He continues, Because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. The point is, church, is that Satan cannot put a wall high enough up in your life that God cannot pull down through your faith in His power. No gate is strong enough. You remember back in Matthew chapter 18 that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, right? And what does He say about the gates of hell? They will not prevail. Let's say that together. They will not prevail. The kingdom of God will win. And Jesus did not stutter when He said in John 12, now is the time for the judgment on on this world. Now this prince of this world will be what? Driven out. Your life is not supposed to be lived in the dumps. Even though that may be where you are physically. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter C. He says to the church in Colossae, struggling with all kinds of things in that church. He says, you know, when you were dead in your sins, verse 13 of chapter 2, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Sins have been forgiven, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. He has taken it away, nailing it to what? The cross of Jesus. Verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, just another way of saying the kingdom of darkness, He has made a spectacle, a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. If you are in Christ and the outcome has been decided, it is a victory. The question is whether or not we see the victory, whether or not we see it every time. It's easy to see it when we're up on the mountaintop, right, and everything's going A-OK. We're up there on top of that mountaintop. It feels pretty good up here. And say, hey, victory in Jesus. But then we, you know, we get down on that plane, and life is that's where we live life most of the time, but then it dips down, and all of a sudden we find ourselves surrounded by an enemy. We find ourselves surrounded. We're in the deep ditch. We're in the valley. And do we see it then? When it's dark? and when it's deep in that that chasm. The sting of death is sin, Paul writes. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The question that I'm going to ask right now is, which generation are we? Are we the generation that meets the challenges and what God has called us to do and to be? with faith or are we the one that does not and turns back and indicts and blackballs God and gives Him a vote of no confidence even though He has given a sign after sign after sign after sign after miracle after goodness after blessing after providential care in this life that He is there with us. The question is whether or not we believe the firm and delivered Word of God that He will bring down any wall that Satan has backed us into. Disciples through faith see the walls coming down in spite of Satan saying, whispering in your ear, that they will stand. 
Satan is the father of lies. He's not going to tell you the truth. What he's going to tell you is that, you know what? God doesn't know that you're in this valley. God doesn't know that you're in the dark or in the cave or that I've got you backed into this corner up against this wall. And regardless of how hard you try, you're never ever going to be able to knock those walls down. God has left you. That's why it's just you and me. A disciple through faith sees a different scenario. Which brings us then to the strategy. The perspective, the way that we, we think, that, that what we see is that the triumph has already been accomplished. The strategy is that God chooses foolishness. I mean, when you think about it, what, what would George Washington say? What would Robert E. Lee say? What would Ulysses S. Grant? What would George Patton say and other great planners of, of battles say when they hear the strategy to bring down a fortress, a mighty fortress, a gigantic bulwark of rock and revetment wall and, and soil and, and, and height and all, what would they say about a strategy that involves getting some trumpets and some Nike tennis shoes, because you're going to do a lot of walking, and, and then giving a shout? What would they say? I'm glad I'm a general and I'm in the back and I can see this from afar because it looks like you're going to get beaten, right? God breaks with conventional human wisdom so that there is no mistake that He is the victor. It's just like the Jordan River. God has them march around the city to impress upon them the greatness of this city. The impregnable fortress that is Jericho. Walls, stories and stories and stories and stories high. And that's to impress upon them that they do not have it within them to bring these walls down is to impress upon them their own personal, individual weakness. God is saying, get a good look at those walls because I'm the one that's going to bring them down. Our problem is that we don't like to follow orders unless they make sense, right? You know, I'm going to be able to follow an order. You know, that commandment by God, it makes sense to me, so I'm going to follow it. But that one over here doesn't make so much sense great sense to me, so I'm not going to follow it. You know what? That's not, you know, that's not discipleship. That's not faith. That's agreement. That's not obedience. You know, when my son, my daughter show obedience when they were small, when I would ask them to do something and they didn't want to do it or they didn't understand it, but they went and did it anyway. That was obedience. If they were just doing the things that they, you know, that they understood, then that's not obedience. That's just agreement. And that's why God uses foolishness. If God's way always makes sense, then it doesn't require faith. For instance, God says if you want to great, be great. If you want to be really great in the kingdom of God, what do you have to be? A servant. Now that doesn't really jive real well with the, with the um, American policy of ambition, does it? You can never go backwards. If, if, if you want to be first, then you ought to be last. You know, there are things that just don't make sense, but we obey them anyway because it's the kingdom of God and that's, that's where we've landed, by God's grace. If God would have said, get some battering ramps, then they would have been very slow to show God any glory whatsoever. Obedience to what appears as foolishness to us is what brings glory to God. Ask Gideon about getting trumpets and empty pitchers and going into battle. Ask Naaman about dipping seven times in a dirty river to cure himself of leprosy. Quite frankly, the cross of Jesus is the most foolish thing imaginable to the army of Satan. 
And that's why Paul writes to the church in Corinth, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. You know what's really funny about that verse is we think, you know, when I was wrestling, I talked about this last week, you know, if I was, I was, I was wrestling a really good wrestler, I was going to bring my A game. I mean, I was thinking about that guy all week. And I was thinking about what I was going to do to him. And then I, was, I thought about what I would do after I pinned him. You know, This is what God does. This is, that's Mark. Mark is meeting power with power, fire, fire power with power, power, force with force, anger with anger, right? It just, boom, that's, what, that's what's happening out there on that mat. This is what God does. God is able with the weakest bone of His pinky finger to defeat the greatest strength that human beings have. Could you imagine what it's going to be like if He ever used the fullness of His holy power upon us? It's just, it's, it's, He uses foolishness to destroy the, the wisdom of the wise. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, foolishness. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Friends, I, I, I know that many of you are facing things that are, are, are beyond you. And you really don't have a whole lot of hope. Or maybe you've already committed yourself to the fact that this thing can never get any better. It's only, it's, it's only going to end up bad. It's going to end up in ruin. It's going to end up in smoldering you know, ruins. I want to say very clearly this morning that walls come down not through our understanding, but through our obeying. The eyes of faith are going to make you a fool for Christ. And there are things that, that you are called to do by faith with God that are going to seem foolish, foolish, foolish. Because it doesn't seem like it has much chance of working. Or that there can be much of an opportunity for reconciliation or that that anger will ever dissipate or that, that there, there will ever be enough forgiveness that, that two people can get together or, or enough help to be able, of, uh, you know, what looks like financial ruin to, to, to be overcome. And you don't understand how it's going to happen. The answer is those walls don't come down because you understand and it makes sense. And so you agree with it. Those walls come down because you have chosen to obey and thus become a fool for Christ. You know, we just finished up a series on 1 John. One of the things that 1 John tells us is that 
The reason Jesus came, the Son of God came, was to destroy the works of Satan and to destroy Satan himself. The works of the devil are to be destroyed. Now, I do not know how many days are left. But I kid you not, I'm going to march. And I intend to stand one day, one day next to Rahab who knew that she could not save herself but put her trust in a scarlet cord. A scarlet cord, for goodness sakes, in the middle of a, of a, of a, of a city that is falling to dust. You know, we talk about the cross of Jesus a lot. You know, it really is foolishness. Who would have ever thought? Who would have ever thought? It was just not on anybody's radar to think that that was what was going to happen to the Messiah. But God was working a bigger plan. The bigger plan was that we didn't understand and still to a large degree don't because the ways of God are mysterious. But what we do know is that the reason that Jesus died on the cross, it was not an accident. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't by the, the invention of man or by the power of man or by the mechanization of man. It was because of the plan of God for all of our sins to be put on Him so that we could be forgiven because we're in Christ and Christ is in us and it's His righteousness that's passed on to us. And that's what happens when we rise up in newness of, of life as a new creature at our baptism. You think about all of the stuff that's going on in your life right now and I know you think that you can never change or that circumstances can never change. I'm here to tell you they can. That wall is not insurmountable. This past uh, Friday night and Saturday morning, I was uh, participating in a, a board of trustee meeting with uh, Great Cities Missions, which is uh, an organization that helps train and plant uh, churches of Christ throughout South America and Spanish-speaking uh, places here in the United States. And down in South America, a young Christian man was out uh, working on his, on his vehicle when he hears the click of a gun behind him. And he turns around, and it's a bandido, it's a ladrón, it's a, it's a thief. And he's going to rob him, and he's going to shoot him. And this young man, this brother that we have in Christ, down there in South America, turns and faces this guy with a gun in his face. And he says, I don't have anything to give you. But here's what I am going to give you. I'm going to pray right now for you. And he started to pray. And you can imagine, the gun started to shake a little bit. And finally, that gun dropped. And this thief asked this man, it's a true story, just happened. Asked him, do you really believe I can change? Which led to a Bible study. I am standing before you as a testimony to people changing. You're seated among people in these orange pews that are trophies of God's grace and of the change that God can bring where we just saw walls and no way out. God brought those walls down and we were able to go in. We have some shepherds that are going to be down here at the front. These are the spiritual leaders of our church family, our shepherds, our elders. And we're going to sing a song right now. And one of the things I want to invite you to do right now, if you've really been troubled with your life and struggle with the fact that it just doesn't seem like you can change. I'm, 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 let, me, let me let you off that hook. You can't change if it's just you. If it's just you.
but through obedience to the will of God. God will change you and bless you and turn you into a trophy and turn you into a beauty that you never imagined. One that you never imagined. And if that describes you this morning and you want to change, you want to come to God and you want to come to Christ, then come down and talk to our shepherds as we stand and sing together. Kneel at the cross, Christ will meet you there. He intercedes for you. Lift up your...